verses 21 through chapter 60, verse 7, and verses 15 through 19. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. For out of the mouth of your offspring, for out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace, and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders? You shall call your walls salvation, and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. He has a bright future. Or she has a bright future. We use that phrase a lot, and we use it to describe what we believe is the potential in someone. We use it to describe what we think will be a future that will be successful, or that they will have a meaningful contribution to society. Here in Florida, we have now a scholarship named after it. The Bright Futures Scholarship is given to graduating high school seniors as they go to college. But I don't know that that phrase is used very often to describe our world. We talk about people who may have bright futures, but I don't think we very often speak about our world having a bright future. And even maybe more so than what we've seen in the past several years. But there's nothing new under the sun. You go back to the 1950s, there was the horror of nuclear exchange and the threat of it. And so students would practice in their classrooms hiding under their desks if there was a nuclear exchange that happened. 
pandemic in 2020, there was a rampant, rampant increase in the number of doomsday bunkers that were purchased. These companies that, that, that basically sell these bunkers where you can supply a year's worth of food and water if things get really bad. Interesting, in the 1950s when there was nuclear exchange threat, the same thing happened. People were purchasing these bunkers where they could put food and water in for a year if they had to. I, just a couple of weeks ago, I had somebody in a neighborhood walking along and somebody stopped and I was introduced to this person and they said, are you, are you ready to move to Greenland? Now that was a different country of choice, but that's a phrase that's been going on for several years now. And then of course, Last week, you heard Isaiah 59 explained. For truth and justice has stumbled in the public square. You heard it, it, it very sobering the darkness that is in our world, and it's real. You add that all up, and the last thing that you think is wow, our world has a bright future. The reality is it does. And that's why Isaiah chapter 60 follows Isaiah chapter 59. Our world has a bright future. The question is why? Why is the future bright, especially after reading a chapter like chapter 59 that describes the sober reality of our fallen and broken world? Why? First, because of an unbreakable promise. There's an incredibly powerful truth that's communicated in the last verse of chapter 59 and the first verse of chapter 60. It's a powerful truth, but it's subtle. And it's subtle because of one of the difficulties of the English language. Verse 21 of chapter 59. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. Who does you refer to? Paul's not answering that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Is that the same you, or is that referring to the same people that the end of chapter 59 refers to? Well, in the Hebrew language, which is the original language of the Old Testament, second person pronouns have gender. And these two yous are different. The you at the end of chapter 59 is masculine. The you in verse 1 of chapter 60 is feminine. And throughout the book of Isaiah, Zion, or the city of God, or the people of God, is referred to as a feminine entity. And so what you have here is that the you in verse 1 of, of Isaiah 60 refers to the church, the people of God. But the you at the end of chapter 59, verse 41, refers to Jesus, or the servant of the Lord that's been building these chapters of Isaiah. You say, well, what difference does it make? Well, what does that mean? It's actually incredibly powerful. 
Notice what God says in verse 21. This is my covenant with them. The them are the people in verse 20 that have turned from their sin and their transgression. So God says, this is my covenant with those who have turned from their sin. What does covenant mean? Biblically. Well, covenant is God pledging himself, binding himself to us. So that he becomes our God and we become his people. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens through a pledge or a promise. But it's not a promise that's given to you or to me. It's a promise that's given to his son Jesus. It's a pledge given to his son Jesus. That is the absolute foundation of the covenant that is for us. But the foundation of it is a promise God made to his son. Look at verse 21 again. My spirit that is upon you, Jesus, and my word that I put in your mouth, Jesus, shall not depart out of your mouth, Jesus, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. This is the language of the covenant that God speaks in Genesis 12 to Abraham. When he says to Abraham, in you, Abraham, all the families on the earth shall be blessed. And Galatians chapter 3 makes it clear that that covenant with Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. And those who turn to Jesus by faith and in repentance become offspring of Abraham. The whole covenant is wrapped around this promise that God makes to his son. And here's the power. God doesn't make a promise directly to you. And, and you're going to see why you should be really thankful about that. He makes a promise to his own son, and then you, who have faith in Jesus, reap the blessings of that promise through Jesus. But he makes his promise to Christ. You say, why is this important? Well, the future of our world is not right because people are going to finally figure it out and do the right thing. That's, a lot of, that's not a lot of future bright in our world. Nor is the future bright because God's going to renew this world because we do the right thing and therefore deserve it. No, the future of this world is bright because God made a pledge, a promise to his son. That he doesn't remake it. He doesn't back out of it. You know, one of the reasons why people are so pessimistic about our world and the future of it. And I'll just say we all can fall in that camp to some degree. You know, the level of pessimism in this room would go from kind of one end of the spectrum to the extreme of the spectrum, right? But the reason we fall into pessimism is because we watch the news, we watch social media, we watch leaders break their promises. We become frustrated with that. Now, the positive side of that is that we understand that this world being fixed is beyond us individually. We're looking to someone to fix this world. That's the positive side. We actually, we understand representation. And what's interesting is that's a clash in our culture because 
We live in a highly individualistic culture. A culture that uses phrases like, go be you. And the truth is inside of you. So if you just dig deep enough, you can find the truth inside of you. It's kind of a message of, you don't need anybody else. Right? You just be you. And that's going to fix things. But then at the same time, we clearly become upset when leaders break their promises. When leaders don't do what they said they're going to do, when the world's falling apart. And so we have to cut attention. Because the reality is, we're hardwired for representation. We're hardwired for someone to, to lead us, someone to guide us, someone to direct us. We're hardwired to find our joy in someone else outside of ourselves. Just go to a Jaguar game and you'll see that. Especially recently. I was at the Tennessee Titans game, last game of the season, when they won. They got into the playoffs. 70,000 plus fans, electric atmosphere, place is going crazy. Clock takes down, the Jaguars won. They're going to the playoffs. I mean, it was like walking out of that stadium was not amazing. But what did everybody say walking out of that stadium? We won. We won. I want to say, you were sitting in your seat eating a hot dog and a beverage of choice and I've had a few too many beverages of choice. What do you mean you won? See, there's a deep longing for us to find our joy. There's a reap the benefit from the joy of something, someone else, or a team, whatever it may be. You say, why is that? Because it's hardwired in you. You were created that. You were created for your joy. Your joy and your delight that comes from someone else. The problem is we look to the wrong leader. We look to the wrong, wrong person to represent us. God made an unbreakable promise with his son Jesus. An unbreakable promise to his son. And Jesus has never failed and will never fail to renew this world according to the Father's will, according to the Father's time. Jesus will never fail. And so it raises the question, are you staring at broken promises? Every one of us has experienced a broken promise. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in friendship. Maybe it's in your boss at work. Maybe it's in an elected official. The list goes on. Are you staring at broken promises and allowing your heart to be filled with pessimism and cynicism? Or are you staring at the unbreakable promise that God has made? and allowing your heart to be filled with that hope. The future is bright because of an unbreakable promise. But second, it's bright because of an astonishing transformation. Verses 2 to 5 of chapter 60 describe or begin to describe this beautiful world renewal. The world being set 
right. And then there's this stunning aspect of the renewal of the world that's explained in verses 6 to 7. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebeah shall minister to you. It shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. All these different nations that are listed here in these two verses communicate something very powerful. Midian was to the far south. Ephah was to the east of the Persian Gulf. Sheba was in the deep south. Kedar and Nebiah were in the northern regions. A point being made here, north, south, east, west. The renewal of the world involves all people. All nations. This is worldwide renewal. All types of people, all kinds of people, all ethnicities, all cultures, tribe, tongue, nation. This is all inclusive. And not only that, but notice here that these are nations at this point. Remember, Isaiah is writing this letter to God's people who, because of their sin, were sent into exile in a very dark place. And now we're in the last part of Isaiah where there's a revival or renewal return. But notice that all these nations were working against or currently presently when this letter was written, working against God and against his purposes. And notice what these enemies are doing in the last half of verse. They're worshiping God. They're bringing gifts to God. They're proclaiming the good news. Enemies to evangelism. Enemies for worshipers. This is astonishing transformation. And that's the point that's being made here. Is that God is a God of astonishing transformation. Beyond what our finite minds can imagine, plan, control, think about, God changes people. God changes things. It continues. Look at verse 16. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. That milk is fat, rich cream. It's the best in a land flowing with milk. Breasts signify intimate, loving maternal care and self-giving. God's using this language to describe this new relationship between enemies and his people. Enemies have become intimate allies in a way that God's people would have never imagined, could have never fathomed. It was beyond their ability to even think that something like that could happen. That kind of transformation. You know, one of the reasons that we don't believe the future of the world is right is because functionally, Functionally, speaking of intellectually, what you would say, but functionally at a heart level, we don't believe things can change. We don't believe people can change. And so you grow cynical. 
Negro pessimistic. And yet the scriptures from start to finish are full of dramatic transformation, dramatic conversions. Our world is full of dramatic transformation, dramatic conversions. Let me give you an example of a few. C.S. Lewis, militant atheist, Oxford teacher. The last thing he wants is to be converted. And as he would say it, God snuck up on him. He was surprised by joy and he said, I am, I am dragged, kicking and screaming. The most reluctant convert of all the world into the kingdom. Or John Wesley in the 1700s, my fanatical son of a minister, a missionary to America, great theological mind, but a failure as a human being and as a minister. He was sitting in a chapel service in England as a failed missionary. And he would describe that his heart was strangely warm when he became a pastor in his ministry. Or John Salah, probably a name you don't recognize. By the time of his 22nd arrest, it happened after a high-speed chase in Miami that involved police cars, that involved much shooting. He was finally apprehended. He was sent to jail for a long time. It was there in jail that he found his saving grace. He met the chaplain, Warren Wall, who shared the good news of the gospel of John Solomon. He received Jesus Christ. He finished out his prison sentence in 1983. He came out a free man, freer than he had ever been even before prison. And he came out and he proclaimed as he left the prison, I'm not coming back. Turns out he did come back. Turned out of prison as a missionary to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me drive it closer to home. You're sitting here, if you're sitting here as a follower of Christ. That's a miracle. You hear that? You didn't make good decisions. You didn't do your homework and say, yeah, Jesus makes the most sense. Let me surrender my life to him. No. That's what I explained with these kids came up. You've been transformed. Astonishing transformation. The future is bright because what is today is not what will be in the future. What is today, as dark as it may be, as impossible as it may seem to get out of, what is today is not what will be in the future. And I believe in some ways we have lost sight of the astonishing transformation of God because, in part, of what developed in the pandemic. What developed in the pandemic, I'll say it this way, the pandemic drew out our sinful tendency to self-protect and self-preserve. 
y'all would wore masks. We social distanced. We withdrew. We enjoyed sitting in our pajamas, watching church in our beds on the couch. We enjoyed sitting in our pajamas, doing our work from home. And some of you are still doing that. We withdrew. We isolated. Some of you actually really enjoyed the pandemic because you didn't have to deal with people. You don't have to smile. You don't have to. It's, it's true. I know. I've had enough conversations. But we withdrew. And, and what happened is we, it, it, it pulled out of us the self preservation, self protection. Then we have to hunker down, ride out. I said it in the beginning, but there was a boom during the pandemic in these bunkers. These bunker doomsday bunker things. Real things, real pandemic things. And so we hunker down, we ride out. And yet, none of this aligns with the astonishing transformation of our God who uses his people who don't self protect and self preserve, but who self sacrifice. Right? You're safe not because you've aligned your circumstances up and, up and protected yourself. You are saved because you're in the hands of the sovereign God. That's where your primary safety comes from. Now, yes, there's wisdom and protection, and I'm not speaking against that, but the pandemic grew out the sinful tendency of us to protect and hunger down and pull back and not self-sacrifice and be a part of what God is doing to transform his people. So that's the question I would ask you. Have you pulled back? Have you withdrawn? Have you isolated? Have you, maybe the, the cynicism that's developed over the past several years in our culture, have you written people off as unchangeable? Have you written situations off as unchangeable? Have you lost sight of our God who brings about astonishing transformation and change through the person and work of the Son of Jesus? future is bright because of an ungrateful promise, because of an astonishing transformation, and finally because of the glory of God. Verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Two different words are used for this broad idea of glory in chapter 60. The word appears numerous times throughout the chapter. Two different words. One connotes the idea of weightiness or importance. And the other connotes the idea of, of beauty. Both words are present in verse 13 of this chapter. And so what they speak of is the glory of God is the sheer presence of God in all his weightiness, in all his beauty. The glory of God is a theme from start to finish in the Bible. Over and over, we see descriptions of, experiences of the glory of God, but what you'll notice is that when the glory of God is spoken of in the scriptures, it, there's always a mediation. There's always someone between the glory of God and God's people. And so you have many figures in the Old Testament that serve as mediators. Moses 
who would, who would be between the glory of God and God's people. So he and Moses, when he went up to the, you know, up to meet with God, and he said, you know, ask to see God's glory. What did he see? God gave him just a tiny slip, the backside of his glory. The priest in the temple would go into the Holy of Holies. They would go in to mediate between God's glory and the people, and then even the priest would walk into God's presence with blood. So the blood would be between God's glory and the priest. And then of course today, Jesus Christ is our mediator. He's the one mediator between God and man, between God and people. And so you have this mediated glory of God. You say, why, why, why is there mediation? Why do we see the glory of God mediated throughout the scripture? Because the glory of God eviscerates sin. It destroys and so the reason why here in verse 19, we see that the glory of God is suffering in the future world, the new heavens and earth is going to be unmediated, is because those in Christ that are in the new world will have new bodies that don't have sin. Or broken. And notice what else we see here from this verse 19. It's quoted in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. No temple in the renewed world. Why? Because there's no need for a mediator between the glory of God and his people, because his people no longer have sin. And, and notice what else it said in Revelation 21. It goes on to say that nothing unclean will enter the new heavens and new earth. Meaning the glory of God eviscerates sin and evil, destroys it. None will be able to enter. Incinerated by the glory of God. But we will be in that presence of the glory of God. And there's no moon or no sun because sunlight and moonlight are mediated light. There's no mediation. In the presence of the glory of God, the glory of God is the light of God with God with no cycle of day or, or night. That's the reality of our future. You say, well, what do we do with these images or these, these, this mediation of God's glory? Sunlight's one. The mediated light. But, but what does sunlight do? Bring warmth? And therefore, comfort. What else does sunlight do? Keeps evil at bay. Typically, when there's crime and all that happens in the darkness, sin happens in the darkness, kind of in the light, there's security. So, sunlight brings a sense of security. It also brings beauty for those that go watch it rise or watch it set. Right? There's a beauty there that brings pleasure. And so just from sunlight, we see comfort, we see security, we see pleasure, and yet sunlight is a mediated light. It is just a parable of the glory of God. It's a glimpse of the glory of God. It's a parable of something much greater, infinitely greater, the glory of God that brings comfort 
and security and pleasure. Same would be true of marriage. Jesus said that in Matthew 22, 30, that there's going to be no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. In the renewed world, there will be no marriage, which means there will be no sex. Well, that would say that then the, the, the intimacy of marriage and the relationship and the pleasure within it is just a parable. It's a parable of something infinitely greater, which is the sheer pleasure and delight and ecstasy of the soul in the presence of the glory of God. Do you see what God does? He gives us sunlight. He gives us marriage. He gives us these things that are just mere parables of his glory that has to be mediated. Otherwise, this place would be wiped out because it's so full of sin and broken. D.A. Carson, he's the president of Gospel Coalition, spent many years as a professor in seminary. He gives us an illustration of this because he says, you know, we have these uh, words, images that God mediates, mediations that God gives us to try to communicate what His glory is and its effect on us. But then he uses this, and I think the helpful illustration and older sister who for some years served as a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And he said this tribe that she served in was pre-Stone Age technology. They didn't even use stones for arrows. They used hardwood. They used like teak or bamboo. It, it was a very, very primitive tribe. He says, suppose that someone comes out from the tribe and meets with you and you're a linguist to help you and teach you what their their verbal language is. And so they meet with you for five, eight years, and, and you work with that tribal person to learn their language excellently. And then, once you've learned the language, you're given the task, the responsibility, of being dropped into that tribe via helicopter or something. And your task was explaining to those people what electricity And you can't use objects, you can only use words. And so, how would it go about? And D.A. Carson did this idea of how you might explain electricity to this problem. I come here to talk to you about, well, there's no word for it in your language, so we'll coin a new one. We'll call it electricity. Electricity is like a powerful spirit that runs through hard things like vomit. These hard things don't grow, however. They're things that we make in very big mud huts that we call factories. We loop them from tree to tree. Actually, we cut down the tree, we take off all the branches, we put the tree back. But never mind, too hard to describe powerful. All right, we loop them from tree to tree. This electricity we pump to these hard things like vines at one end, and then these hard things like vines come through your roots and into square things where the electricity goes round and round and round, and it goes around so fast it makes things hot. And you can actually boil your water in your place hot without having smoke in your house. You can put that same electricity in little round things that we put in our thatched roofs. It goes in there and it gives you light like a little sun right in your thatched roof. 
Now you finish this description. And they look at you like you're heart breaking. You're confused. They're confused, partly amazed. Why? Because they have no category for this. And they have no words for it. And so it is with the glory of God. We don't have words that can express the glory of God. That's why in Revelation, there's so much imagery. God gives us images that start to get at what His glory is like. He gives us mediators, parables like sunlight, like marriage. As, as tiny glimpses of what His glory is like and the effect it has on people. And yet there is no joy, no delight, no pleasure that you would experience through any of those mediated things like marriage or sunlight that can even touch the joy, the delight, the pleasure that's going to come one day when you're before the unmediated, glorious presence and glory of God. They say, well, does that mean that you just dismiss the experiences in your life? No. In fact, just the opposite. We use the images, the parables that God gives us in this life to direct our hearts to Him, to His glory, that we know one day will be unveiled and there will be no more need for mediators because we'll be directly in His presence, experiencing joy and delight and pleasure. That's why the future of this world is bright. Life can be a lot like looking out over a beautiful grassy field with beautiful flowers, trees, rolling hills. And you kind of start life off and you look out at the journey of life and you see the beautiful trees, the flowers, the hills, and you, you have these great hopes of joy for just an amazing life. And oftentimes that works with marriage as well, as one of God's parables that He gives us. We enter marriage and go, wow, all these great joys and hopes. And then we start stepping into mud pies, cow pies. We step into cow pies. And we step in enough of them that we begin to wonder if that's all there is for cow pies. And at that point, we begin to drop our vision, our gaze down to all the cow pies that are in front of us. That's what Isaiah 59 was all about. Now, I'm not going to go back into detail. I can probably say Isaiah, Isaiah 59 or cow pies. That's almost trivial. Right, but, but God knows that this life is full of cow pies. And that's why he gives us a vision of the future, a vision of his future. It is glorious. That we can, as we work through this field, we can have our eyes on the trees, the flowers, the rolling hills, and our vision can be there. And God also knows this that if we can see His future, we can face anything in the present. 
be God's people by the Spirit through grace through the work of His Son Jesus. You can face anything in the presence of Christ. Father, the future is glorious, the future is bright, and yet we all, we all are, are keenly aware of the sin and brokenness we deal with in this life. And Father, we confess that, that we are pessimistic and cynical because in our, our own eyes and our own abilities and understanding, we look down and we see people that we don't think can change. And we see situations that, that we don't think can change. And yet, Father, you made an unbreakable promise with your son Jesus, and because of that, we can have firm hope for change. That you're a God of astonishing transformation. And Father, the day is coming where your glory won't be mediated anymore. It will stand in the presence of your glory, unmediated, because there will be no more sin, death, pain, sorrow, and nothing unclean will be able to enter your new world. Father, you fix our eyes on your future. It is firm, it is guaranteed, and that gives us hope and the faith 